0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am uh, in the silo today our secret location <laughs> here in the Ministry <laughs> of Shark in Washington, D.C., uh, and I am joined by um, uh, Corey Shockey, uh, of course, uh, who <laughs> is running the foreign uh, policy and def- uh, national security programs at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, hi, Corey.
1: Hello, David.
0: Uh, we're we're as close as we've been in like months. You know, two miles apart.
1: I felt it's a disturbance cl- in the force.
0: Yes, uh, well, I <laughs> hope not a terrible one. And <laughs> by um, Ed Luce, who everybody associates with the American Heartland, Ed uh, of the Financial Times, of course, um, is also today, you know, our correspondent on the ground in Des Moines, Iowa. How's that working out for you, Ed?
2: Ah, uh, you betcha!
3: <laughs>
2: amazing, amazing. It's
3: just almost—it's um, yes,
2: almost—it's almost, it's almost uncanny. Does the hair stand up on the back of your neck?
0: Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yet, you know, uh, that happens a lot these days. Um, and uh, we are also joined by. Uh, uh, Fred Kaplan, who is here for the first time, but we're delighted to have him, who is a national security columnist for Slate magazine. And he is also the author of a new book, which has been getting amazingly good reviews in all the right places called The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Uh, and, so, welcome, Fred. Thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, sure. My pleasure.
0: Um, now, uh, last week we were talking a little bit about nuclear uh, issues uh, because the um, uh, uh, the doomsday clock had been moved forward from 120 seconds before midnight to 100 seconds before midnight. Uh, and we've been trying to do here is we've been trying to focus on uh, the bigger issues while others dominate the headlines. And so I thought maybe we could spend five or 10 minutes talking uh, about Fred's book and its implications, and then we could broaden that out to broader questions of uh, uh, geopolitics and national security that are bubbling up. I do want to ask Ed a little bit about how it feels uh, now that the UK is no longer part of Europe, Uh, and then we'll uh, spend a few minutes also talking about uh, the uh, Iowa caucuses since we have Ed out there milking cows, I presume, um and I want to hear about that and i'm sure all of you do uh, i'm sure I'm sure all of you do um, as well but but fred you know i've 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 been struck first of all as a sometime author uh, with the uh, glowing quality of your reviews, and I'm trying not to let my jealousy at that impede my uh, interviewing here but the book sounds <laughs> it's,
1: it's, a natural, it's a natural thing I'll, I'll every it. writer understands it David
0: yeah you can see the review
3: in the St. Louis Globe whatever the Post Dispatch go read that one if you want to feel good
1: I, I object in the strongest possible terms to that derision about the St. Louis Post Dispatch the finest sports yeah. newspaper in the country
0: well, yeah, no, St. Louis. But anyways,
2: yes, I was going to say St.
0: St. Louis. St. Louis, the most important <laughs> city in Kansas. Um, Have <laughs> any of you read
2: that book? What's the matter with Missouri? Great right, book. Yes.
0: Exactly.
2: What's wrong with Missouri? Yeah. Uh,
0: exactly. In fairness, um, in
3: fairness, there is a Kansas City, Kansas. That it's yes. not where anything happens. Yeah. No,
0: that's true. No. Um, That was one of the White House defenses of the president's uh, sort of (laughs) mislocation
2: of Kansas City
0: uh, yesterday. But let's let's move on away from that a little bit. You know, I I think one of the things that is striking about your book is the, the, you know, behind the scenes discussions that have more recently come to light um, about not just, you know, managing our nuclear arsenal, but the inner conflicts that have existed in the U.S. government, where the Strategic Air Command and others have essentially tried to keep control of this from uh, the civilian side of the government, when they when they feared it, um, and uh, uh, despite that, we've managed to avoid cataclysm. Um, it, is it the new papers that have come out, uh, the the new documents that are now available that have led you? Uh, to this book, which is a follow up on some earlier work you've done, Fred, or what was it what was no, it that led, uh, led you to this now?
3: Well, you know, yeah, I, I wrote a my first book was The Wizards of Armageddon in 1983, which was about the, the think tank intellectuals who invented Which is all
1: another this book. great book. Oh thanks, thanks.
3: But no, I, I really didn't think I would write another nuclear book and nobody was thinking about this topic for 30 years. And then president trump made his fire and fury remarks and everybody is suddenly terrified but they don't know why they're terrified it was sort of a paralytic quality to it because nobody had thought about this for 30 years and most people weren't even you know they weren't even young enough old enough at the time to think about it when it was a big issue so i said well maybe it's time to go back and look at uh uh, what's been going on recently and to take a look also at, at uh, new documents on what I covered in the first book. And it turns out I was wrong about a couple of things, but, but um, so, yeah, no, I, I came into the, the more newly declassified material as a result of getting into this book. It wasn't, it wasn't the impulse for it. So let me, um, let me
0: ask you one more question on this, and then I want to turn to Corey and Ed, but, but, You know, one of the things that that resonated with me, um, because it underscores how easy it is for us to miss the bigger picture, was an incident that you describe um, with Trump uh, when he is being presented um, with the progress that's been made to reduce nuclear weapons. Uh, And I'll I'll read the excerpt that that appeared in The Washington Post, in which you write. Trump viewed the chart from a different perspective, telling the group he wanted more nuclear weapons. He pointed to the graph's peak year in 1969 when the United States had 32,000. Trump asked why we didn't have that many weapons now. Now, this is the meeting that Rex Tillerson um, left. Or, or when after Trump left, Rex Tillerson muttered loud enough to be heard uh, that the president was a fucking moron. And, and, and most people are focusing on the fact that the secretary of state called the president a fucking moron, and not the somewhat more salient fact that the president of the United States wanted to go back to Cold War highs of nuclear weapons, um, which, which, which seems to me more salient. Well, I think in
3: in Trump's case, it was really more his typical egomania, which is, um, you know, he he feels terrible that that some previous president had more of something that than he did, whether it was people who showed up at their inauguration or number of nuclear weapons in their arsenal. the the, the kind of a, a constant, a kind of a persistent theme in my book, which somebody called a, a catalog of near misses. Uh, you know there, there there have been two strains of thinking in all of this, that the sort of academic nuclear strategy uh, talk, and then what's really been going on in the subterranean world at SAC now called strategic command, which hasn't the latter of which hasn't changed much at all. And this is a story of presidents, many of whom have gotten into crises in which they've had to ponder the use of nuclear weapons, and most of them have delved quite deeply into this, into the logic of it, into the scenarios, into the consequences. And they decided to turn around and say, nope, I am not going down that rabbit hole. I'm getting out of here as fast as possible to come up with some other solution. And this has been born not out of innocence, as I say, but out of a deep look, uh, even in the case of Ronald Reagan, much deeper than you might think. Whereas my, my concern about Trump is that he doesn't think deeply about anything and and could get caught in, in what in Cold War times used to be called the, the, the trap of the clever briefer, someone who can lay out a scenario where he might get away with using nuclear weapons under certain circumstances. Uh, it seems to me that in the nuclear age, Trump probably stands as the president most susceptible to the wiles of a clever briefer.
0: Well, what worries me, Corey, is that the president, surrounded by so many not so clever briefers, um, and is not the most sophisticated consumer of briefs, uh, as this anecdote describes himself. And he's proven himself to be an outlier uh, in so many areas of presidential behavior. Uh, and you know, we 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 talk about a lot of the kind of you know modest threats um, Trump poses, or some of the theoretical threats that Trump poses, this is real stuff and, and big stuff. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, as, as you contemplate this history, which is, you, you, you know, yourself, um, you know, how, how you feel this can be, you know, made clearer to the average listener and whether perhaps you have a question for Fred.
1: So first of all, David, I agree with your reflex. That I am less worried about the president falling victim to the clever briefer, because uh, having read the Washington Post reporting about that Pentagon meeting that Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mattis, and uh, economic advisor Gary Cohn organized for the president, uh, no amount of clever briefing chairs what he changes what he believes. So he's not data sensitive. I don't think he's briefing sensitive. Uh, He has things he believes, and it is those things he believes that are the actual problem. Uh, so, So belligerent ignorance is the president's posture on these things. But I'm a little bit less worried about the consequences of that than either you or Fred are, because I also think that the president's uh, inclinations about the use of military force are inclinations of, you know, the the quick, the quick, pointless, or not. That's not fair. The quick, painless strike, um, and of course, no nuclear weapons use can possibly fit in that category. So I think the president likes. Uh, reckless talk but I don't think he would actually enact a reckless policy but I have now talked myself in a complete circle because um, you guys are right and maybe I am not worried enough about the fact that the president may be learning the wrong lessons from the quick painless uh, targeted killing of Qasem Soleimani to actually believe that a bloody nose strike on North Korea, which was attractive to the president, to General McMaster, his national security advisor, and several others early on in the administration, that that maybe they will learn the wrong lesson from Iran or from where we are so far on Iran, uh, and believe that a quick, painless strike that could result in nuclear retaliation by us or by North Korea, will somehow be painless. Fred is- yeah, That's kind of are what you, I meant. W- uh, Please sorry, go, ahead. go
3: ahead.
1: Nope, well, I yeah, was just gonna ask a, a, if that's what you meant. Briefer,
3: a clever briefer is someone who, who knows what buttons to push and, and the person who's briefing it. Yeah, I, I've wondered, this isn't in the, well, I guess it is in the book actually. What happens, if and when Trump realizes that Kim Jong Un has been taking him for a ride all this time, that all the beautiful letters and their bono mi, uh and his assurances that oh no I'm not, don't worry I won't test any missiles, what happens when he starts testing missiles again? And and yeah, there there one thing that I that I learned from interviewing some people is that when when Trump made his fire and fury remarks six months into office. This didn't come out of his hat. He had ordered, and the Pentagon had put in place, some very serious war plans, which were to be in response not to an invasion of South Korea or an attack on us, but a particularly provocative test. And this was to begin with a bloody nose, but many of the military people who, some of them reluctantly, were recruited to write this plan were quite concerned that it could escalate all the way. And one of the briefers who was a good briefer, not a clever briefer in the pejorative sense of the word, said, Mr. President, don't take the first step unless you're willing and prepared to go all the way. And by all the way, he meant, you know, nuclear weapons in in response to a series of escalations.
0: So, you know, again, this is so profoundly consequential. And we have come close in the past Uh, inadvertently, perhaps, um, uh, or when we've come close to the past and it's been more advertent, it was with a system better prepared to deal with it. And now we're at a moment where we come close because we have a president who's not prepared to deal with it. There are parts of the system not prepared to deal with it. And I think the American people are not conscious of it. And I think this is a good point to turn to Ed and say, you are in Iowa. How long have you been in Iowa, Ed?
2: Uh, this time, about three days.
3: So you know everything and- about
2: it now. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm as clueless as to the outcome um, tonight, um, as we're recording tonight, as, as anybody else. It's it's such an idiosyncratic process. But to anticipate well- your question, David, I mean, I've been to a lot of rallies. One of the leading candidates, you know, Bernie, um, Warren, Joe Biden, Mayor Pete, um, And foreign policy has not, it's not come up in the speeches. It's not come up in the questions, unless you include climate change, which I'm very encouraged to see is playing a a very central role in a lot of the campaigns here. Unless you include climate change as foreign policy. um, Foreign policy is completely absent. And I always find this frustrating because, of course, that's the one area where a President Sanders or Biden or Trump alike has the maximum leeway to act as president. And most of the rest of the stuff, you know, depends on the composition of the Senate and whether it agrees with you. And that's particularly true of what Sanders and Warren are talking about. So I find it very frustrating that foreign policy in general and doomsday plot issues and the, the stuff that the very important stuff that Fred deals with in his book are just simply not surfacing at all um, in the campaign. It's not a new observation. And I understand why, you know, people in Iowa have things in front of in front of them that are more immediate. But it, it's, it seems to be a problem with the system because where the president is potent is on foreign policy.
0: Yeah, Noel, well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Fred, you and I are um, uh, nearly the same age. And uh, I remember as a little kid watching the famous Barry Goldwater, anti-Barry Goldwater Mm -hmm. commercial in which there was this kind of countdown to oblivion and a little girl picking a flower. And, you know, you sort of, the the whole thrust was, this guy is too extreme to be trusted with nuclear weapons. Nobody thought Barry Goldwater was stupid. Nobody thought Barry Goldwater was inexperienced. Um, Nobody thought anything except that he was just too extreme and that this could lead to nuclear conflict. And it was a central issue. Um, And now we have a president who is still, even after four years, demonstrating extraordinary lack of understanding of what's going on, uh, extraordinary uh, impulsiveness. And on top of it, has taken a number of very dangerous steps. Now, setting aside for a moment that North Korea incident or series of uh, events that you described, uh, you know, you have him pulling out of the JCPOA with Iran, which of course uh, he, he did because he said he wanted Iran not to have a nuclear weapon, but of course raises the risk of that. Uh, pulling out of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement with the Russians, which of course, you know, he said, uh, you know, was in our interest, but of course, it was also in the Russians' uh, interest, um, uh, has made statements saying that we should modernize our nuclear forces and, and have more smaller nuclear weapons, which translates into more usable nuclear weapons. It would seem to me that this is a really big issue that people could go after this president about. And yet, as Ed points out, silent.
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think this goes way, way back, at least since, especially since the end of the Cold War, people generally aren't interested in foreign affairs until they are. <laughs> it's like, you know, the old Trotsky line, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Uh, when war becomes interested in you, people get terrified, as they did for about a year after the, the, the uh Fire and Fury remark, and you know, I I talk about a a hearing that took place that was very little covered at the time and almost completely forgotten now. Shortly after the Fire and Fury, all of a sudden, the the Bob Corker, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time, learned that the president has sole authority to launch nuclear weapons, and this was at a time that uh, you know he was saying that the White House was. An adult daycare center, and that the way that Trump was talking, his rhetoric was going to lay a path to World War III. So there was a hearing on presidential launch authority, and it was the first hearing that Congress had held on the subject since the mid '70s. And at one point, a Democratic senator said, "Look, the, what's really going on here is that we don't think that that the president is mentally suitable for this." And there wasn't a single Republican on the committee who disagreed with this premise. And they, there was a very detailed discussion of, of how the launch authority would work and so forth. But at the end of the hearing, nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. I mean, one thing about our glorious Congress is that except for a couple of years after the passage of the War Powers Act, they don't really want the authority. They don't want to take the responsibility. They don't want to uh, be blamable. And if things go south for a war that they had officially uh, approved, so they they try to stay out of it, and and in part as a result, we don't get the full kind of debate on on these issues that uh, that, that we deserve, and and therefore it, it kind of gets swept under the rugs by all the the political people. So,
0: Corey. You are one of the smartest people I know. Um, I could
1: say my and, thanks for that, David.
0: Well, it's that's certainly true, and everybody who listens to this podcast knows that. And you are smart not just about you know, the fields of national security and foreign policy, but also about the country and our politics, and you've advised presidents and worked inside the government. The president of the United States seems ill-suited to managing our nuclear arsenal. It's dangerous. The, pre- the, 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 the greatest global threat we face is the one that Ed mentioned, climate change. And he's actually perversely kind of pro-climate change, pro-climate crisis, has actually taken positions to exacerbate uh, this threat or to negate it uh, as, a, as an issue. Um, He had a national security advisor who said, you know, we don't really need to worry about this stuff in the NSC. We don't need to worry about cyber either. Let's kick those guys out of the NSC, Um, you know, and has provoked conflicts and has empowered enemies around the world. Do you see any way to counteract this phenomenon that Fred is talking about where we could actually make the American people recognize the Existential risk associated with having a president like this for another four years.
1: <laughs> um, so I thought you were going a different place. I thought we were going. You were headed towards a conversation about whether the president should have sole authority for for determining whether to launch nuclear weapons. Something I believe the president. There's no better alternative than this single. Uh, decision maker of the commander in chief. But you asked a much more interesting and demanding question, which is, why are we electing idiots president of the United States when they could uh, all by themselves launch nuclear Armageddon? Uh, Did you
3: say idiots with a plural, with an S? (laughs) (laughs)
1: so Fred one of our long running jokes um, in the podcast is my ardent belief that most American presidents aren't very good at their job and you know uh, I wouldn't want most of the American presidents of the 19th century to have most of the authorities that an American president has now 19th century yeah well yeah, so so forgive me for that inside baseball. Um, on the how do we prevent the Americans, the American public, from electing idiots to high office? Uh, well, I I do genuinely believe um, that having that that the increasing specialization of most professions. That is, they are, they are all becoming so demanding, in some cases so technical, that in some ways they are all becoming elitist and, and we would be better served as a society by, by exercising a little bit of good horse sense and not devolving so much authority to experts to be able to make important decisions that the consequences will affect us. Um, But but that's a polite way of saying that um, we actually deserve bad outcomes if we vote for bad outcomes. And that's where concern about the president being reelected is even more pressing for me than the decision to elect President Trump, which, um, again, Fred, no reason you would know this, but Ed and David know that I'm a. Serenely unrepentant signatory of all the elitist letters opposing President Trump's election on national security grounds, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but but most American friends have a certain dispensation for the rambunctiousness and recklessness of American politics. But there really is a difference between having elected President Trump once and seeing the way he has governed the country Mm -hmm. and his personal comportment and the exacerbation of racial and so many other tensions in this country. Re-electing President Trump um, uh, is going to make the United States a different country. And yet one more reason to read Fred's most recent very interesting book, is that all of us should get an education about this issue. And it's not enough to say defense experts will take care of this for us.
3: Right, right, exactly. One thing that that uh, that's very, I, I, I appreciate your remark about people with, with horse sense, just kind of common sense. Very few presidents come into this office knowing much about, well, knowing anything about this and much about a lot of things. I, I came away from, from writing this book even more impressed with John Kennedy than I was before. Uh, Highly underrated for his wisdom. And this is borne out if you listen to some of the secret tape recordings that he made. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, uh, on the last day when Khrushchev proposed that, hey, I'll take my missiles out of Cuba if you take your missiles out of Turkey. And as we know now, Kennedy said, all of his advisors, this seems like a pretty fair trade. What is not generally known is that everybody sitting around that table fervently opposed taking the trade, not just the generals, but Bobby Kennedy was against it, Robert McNamara, all these people were against it. And Kennedy took the deal, but he did it very secretly. He only told six people, one of whom was not Lyndon Johnson, unfortunately, who took the mythology that Kennedy himself helped perpetrate that, you know, we went eyeball to eyeball with the Russians and they blinked, and it, uh, you know, influenced his decision-making on Vietnam and elsewhere. But time and time again, you see Kennedy in, in tapes and documents uh, when all the experts around the table are spewing things that, that we now, in retrospect, see as nonsense. And, and Kennedy coming up with these very common-sense Notions that, uh, that that in the end saved the day a, a few times really. So we're
0: um, that was a good analogy and it and it sort of brings me to Ed in Des Moines, Iowa. We've got about five six minutes left to go here and and I would like to get a report on that because the only chance we have of getting somebody like a Kennedy um, is if the Democrats figure out how to nominate somebody. Uh, capable right now, the Republican, you know, we, the option that we've got is Donald Trump, and I liken, you know, re-electing him in the context of this conversation to saying, "Well, kids, Grandpa's gone around the bend. Why don't we put him in the gun room next door to the children's room and leave him there for four years? What could go wrong?" You know, um, you know, we're 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 in a kind of dangerous place there, and Ed, I just thought. This Is a good place for you to give us a good report from your time on the ground in Iowa on the way you think the winds are blowing, even if people aren't talking about these issues?
2: Well, I mean, I think the, uh, you know, my favorite yard sign, everybody's favorite yard sign is uh, any functioning adult 2020. Um, and uh, I think most people would
1: never
2: <laughs> They're supporting, you know, one, somebody with a pulse who isn't Donald Trump. Um, I've um, I've now, you know, been to Iowa over four cycles. The first cycle I covered properly was um, the Obama one, Obama-Hillary, for the most part, one in 2008. Um, and for all the sort of friction those two candidates were displaying towards each other their ideological differences were non-existent. There were sort of minor differences of emphasis here and there, but it was really a biographical clash um, between Obama and Hillary. Such a contrast to um, what I've been picking up here this time. Um, I've been, you know, as I said earlier, to a lot of rallies. I went to a big, big Bernie rally in Cedar Rapids at the weekend, uh, and I spent my time... Just going around asking Bernie supporters, if Biden were the nominee, would you vote for him? Um, and I'd say about two thirds said yes. Um, and then the remainder either no or yes if he won fair and square. Um, I then asked if Bloomberg were the nominee, would you vote for him? And almost to a person, and this is a, a lot of people, I was box popping, almost to a person, the answer was no. Uh, We're not going to vote for a a guy who thinks he can buy the debate stage and buy his way into elected office. Um, And that kind of ideological split, uh, you know, between the left um, and the right is something, you know, you just haven't seen um, in in mainstream presidential democratic politics in a long, long time. And if Bernie does happen to win or come a close second or claim one of the wins, because there are many ways of, claiming a win, and there might be different people claiming different wins from Iowa. But if, if, if Bernie comes out of Iowa with some momentum and wins New Hampshire, as polls suggest he's going to do, um, then I think what we're going to uh, be increasingly likely to face is a situation in Milwaukee at the convention uh, in July, where, say, Bernie comes in with, let's say, 37 percent of the delegates. Biden comes in, say, with 32% of the delegates, and most of the spare change goes to Mike Bloomberg. And the Bernie people are saying, well, look, Bernie came first. He should be the nominee. And the DNC are applying, no, there are rules, and the rules apply to everybody. And the rules are that in the second ballot, the superdelegates get to vote. And, you know, of course, most of these superdelegates who are the congresswomen, their governors, their secretaries of state, um, they're big across the Democratic establishment. Most of them have received money in one form or other from their Bloom, from Michael Bloomberg over the years, and most of them, at that level, as Hillary said, don't like Bernie. Uh, so it's it's increasingly sort of plausible to see that kind of convention, um, and it's really hard to imagine um, the Democratic Party in that context uniting behind one candidate, whether, you know, whichever side of the ideological divide gets their nominee. And so that's my concern. Of course, it makes for great journalism. This is an exciting portrait. Um It's a pretty weird way of starting off the whole nominating season. I, I have to say, I always feel this. I feel that particularly strongly this time. Um, but it's a split, an ideological sort of difference. Uh, between different wings of the party that I haven't really witnessed before. And that, that to me is the main, whoever wins or claims victory from Iowa, that to me is the main story here. That, that story is not going to, that theme is not going to go away.
0: Well, that's very chilling because it suggests that the, you know, our prior discussion, um, you know, you know, frames Donald Trump as perhaps the most dangerous president we've ever had. Um, I think it's a matter of record that he's the most corrupt and least suited to the job, but also the most dangerous, um, and that the Democrats seem to be running a process um, that could tee up a November third, 2020 victory for Donald Trump. Before I say goodbye and thank you to everybody, um, you know, on that kind of a note, I feel obligated to turn to Corey, who, you know, holds our uh, tiara of optimism, uh, and and just say say something about all that that should make me feel better because I don't feel really good.
1: (laughs) Oh, um, I see no reason to despair in the long-term good sense of the American public. I don't actually see reasons vast and manifold as are the changes that our society and technology are are visiting upon us. I actually don't see any genuine reason to believe that the system of self-governance designed by our founding fathers and improved so many times since then is incapable of solving the problems that we have now. Can I Feel say better, Fred. more short term. Yes, <laughs> sure, Fred.
3: I, Iowa and New Hampshire are not the entire United States. Uh, you know, remember, Ted Cruz won Iowa the last time in the Republican. Uh,
1: it's a it's terrible a predictor of the Long eventual race, to go. Excellent point. I see you. I the other
2: actually, the last, the last four Democrats to win Iowa have gone on to be the nominee. Is it's that right? It's been a pretty good. In, in, in well, if, if you win
3: Iowa and um, New Hampshire, if you win Iowa and New Hampshire, there is no case of somebody winning both who hasn't gone on okay. to, to win the whole thing. Go well, on. it's just in the past, though, there have been winner take all states. There have been super delegates on the first ballot. All that the, the absence of those changes things this time out for the okay. more chaotic. I think. Yeah. Well, with that, with that seems to be where we're headed. Well, folks
0: that's what we got to look forward to this week oh yeah there's the state <laughs> of the union and um the president will be acquitted for his crimes and um then there'll be a debate mm-hmm. on friday among the democratic candidates in new hampshire so there's plenty so come back to future episodes of deep state radio we'll have two more this week and uh come back in ensuing weeks and for more information about what we're doing uh, Uh, and what we've got planned for the spring, go to the dsrnetwork.com and look around and register so we can send you updates on things we've got going and give you an inside track to be able to attend events and go for discount. And I promise more detailed information on that next week. Uh, In the meantime, I think you should go out and read Fred's book. Uh, It is extremely urgent. These issues are important. The reason we talk about them here is because they're important, even though they're not getting as much coverage elsewhere. Um, And, you know, the reviews of Fred's book, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch Notwithstanding, um, uh, are spectacular. So uh, read it because it's important. Read it because it's good. Thank you very much, Fred, for joining us. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, you, Ed. And uh, we'll... uh, Talk to you again real soon. Bye-bye.